Genesis 48, a very interesting chapter, and for me, a very forgettable chapter. Because it is a chapter, and we'll read it in just a moment, but it is a chapter which is essentially about Jacob, at the end of his life, blessing Joseph's sons. And really, that's about the extent of it, is he blesses Joseph's sons at the end of his life, but he, but he does it by crossing his hands over, as you can even see in this kind of uh, Renaissance art of this, this scene, crosses his hands over so that he actually blesses the younger first before blessing the older. And it's a, quite an interesting scene. But other than that, other than this little kind of cross-hand thing, it's really an event that I think, eh, nice, nice. Not thrilling, but nice. And, and I leave it there at that point. But here's what's interesting. If you, if you look over in Hebrews chapter 11, and often I do that as we make our way through some different Old Testament characters. And in Hebrews 11, you see the capturing of the great hilltops of faith, the mountaintops of faith, of men that are lauded for their faith, men and women, in Hebrews 11. But let me, let me just read to you, I'll start in verse 17, and we'll see the three big patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to see their mountaintop moments that put them here in the hall of faith. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, and we've just had a lot of material in Abraham in Hebrews 11, but I'll cut to the chase here. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. That's a p- pretty big deal. That's Genesis 22. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. And by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And so here is this depiction of Jacob. When he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. And in that blessing, while he worshipped God on his staff, we will now read and try to get to the bottom of why is it that the writer of Hebrews, through the superintending work of the Holy Spirit, captures this event. And, and so uh, turn with me back to Genesis 48, or just let's read if you're already there. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, Manasseh the older, Ephraim the younger, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Uh, one of the kind of the classic commentaries of the Old Testament points to this name play between Jacob and Israel and says at no point is it ever more provocative or poignant than right here. The, the difference between Jacob and Israel. That Jacob is frail laying in the bed, but Israel rises up to bless in alignment with the will of God. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, which was Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase in numbers. I will make you a community of peoples 
And I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Not one of the patriarchs ever forgets what life is all about. As God came to Abraham and said that through you and through your seed will be carried a blessing that blesses you and your child and your child and your child after them. But ultimately, that blessing is not just a blessing to you, but this is my plan for mankind. The blessing that I give you is also the blessing that you will give to all peoples. And this precious cargo will make its way through your lineage, through your children and your children. Each generation, one in particular, will be the promise bearer, will be the blessing bearer. And will take that all the way through until ultimately it culminates in Jesus Christ. This was never lost on the importance of their family line. And when Isaac even said to him in chapter 28, verse 3, that I have been blessed and I will be a community of people. That was not lost on Jacob. Jacob realizing that now I'm the one who is blessed, unlikely as I am, and I will actually be a community of people. And with that de definiteness about the purpose and the plan, he then rises up as Israel because it's time to do some blessing. Now then, verse 5. Your two sons, born to you in Egypt, before I came to you here, will be reckoned as mine. Reckoned is uh, quite the technical term, but it, but it really does mean that there is an adoption process by which they will be regarded and reckoned as my sons. Why? The next verse answers that. Just as Reuben and Simeon are mine, any children born to you after them will be yours in the territory they inherit. Why does he adopt them? Because he has a firm, ironclad resolve and faith in God's promise that the promised land would be his. And that his children will receive an inheritance in the land. And each of them will have a portion of the land. So again, so but why? Why does he inherit does he adopt Manasseh and Ephraim? Why? Because by doing so, instead of giving a single portion to Joseph, he now has a double portion allotted to Joseph's line. And so now Joseph is the son who has a double blessing, a double portion. And that double portion, one goes to Manasseh and one goes to Ephraim. And when we look at the, the, the 12 tribes, we see that each, each tribe... Each of the sons is given a portion, but through Joseph, two portions are given. So, but we still add up to 12. How does it end up with 12? Because the Levites are scattered throughout the entire land. And we'll hear about that a little bit more maybe next week when we see the, the final blessings that go on in, in the book of Genesis. So why does he, why does he uh, adopt them? Because he wants to be able to regard Joseph in a very special way. And I think Joseph appreciates that right now and is excited because Joseph probably is feeling pretty good about himself. He is a man that has now kind of risen in stature, risen in maturity. He is the man who has literally saved the peoples of the earth at this point in time. So there's probably a bit of Joseph that's feeling like, okay, uh, I, I, I see that and I can see why you'd want to give that to me. Because you know what? I saved not only Egypt but all of the surrounding nations, as well as you, Dad, 
and all of my brothers. So good on you. Probably a good choice that I would be honored in that way. But then he says, any children born to you after them will be yours in the territory they inherit, and they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. So just like if Reuben had kids, well, those kids would inherit under Reuben. And, and as Joseph has additional kids, they will inherit, but they'll inherit under Manasseh and Ephraim. And so that's how Manasseh and Ephraim's land will be apportioned, not only to their own sons, but also to any additional sons that Joseph might have. As I was returning from Padam to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrat. So I buried her there besides the road at Ephrat, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? They are the sons God gave me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so that I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age and he could hardly see. Yes, that's true. But I believe as we encounter him here, we will see finally Jacob's eyes opened. Finally, after 147 years, Jacob finally sees clearly. He sees God clearly. He sees himself clearly. When those two things happen, it is astounding the difference that the, the path of our life takes and the perspective that we're able to have. So Joseph brought his sons close to him and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again. And now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees, bowed down with his face to the ground. And there's a beautiful little reversal here that's going on. Joseph, who in the dream had the sun and the moon and the stars, uh, the stars, the sun and the moon all bow down to him. And in fact, as the vizier, as the kind of the, the, the grand vizier over all of Egypt, so they did. So the brothers bowed down to him. And so Jacob had to rely on him for his very life sustenance, for the very wheat and food that Joseph would provide for him. But now Joseph, in deference to the patriarch on his deathbed, about to bestow the blessing, a blessing that is not just hey, here's my wishful thinking for you. The blessing through the very sovereignty of God that identifies what those children will be, how the family should treat those children, and even the destiny that those children will live out. All of that is about to happen. And Joseph in deference comes before Jacob, before Israel, as, as we now see him being called uh, in a proper fashion with humility. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right, towards Israel's left hand. Why? Because Ephraim's the younger. And the left hand is the, the blessing for the younger. The right hand is the blessing for the older. For who would likely be, in this case, the stronger, the bigger, the favored son. The one that Joseph, all of his life, had thought, this is the boy. This is the one that's going to carry on my name. My firstborn. Wow, I cannot wait to see what God not only has done through me, but what he will do through my boy, Manasseh. And so Joseph has a definiteness 
of expectation of what's going to go on here in this grand blessing scene on the deathbed of the patriarch Israel. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. And then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd. Now we hear that phrase, God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. And we think, oh yeah, nice, nice uh, metaphor, sheep, shepherd, all that. That has never been used before in the Bible. This is the very first time that someone is calling himself a sheep and God a shepherd. And not just anyone, but the most decorated shepherd in all the Bible. Think of what he did under those 20 years of oppression under Laban when he worked as a shepherd. His wages were changed so many different times. And he was the most successful shepherd that we see. So he knows of what he speaks. And he knows what it is to be a shepherd. And he also knows what it is to be a sheep. And I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, but keep that in mind. The God who has been my shepherd all my life, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. The angel must be a reference to the angel of chapter 32, when Israel wrestled with God. Literally, Israel, the name means wrestles with God. And so has been Jacob's life, a life of constantly wrestling against the very purposes of God as his self-will butts up against God's gracious will. And, and yet he recognizes, wow, the, the graciousness of God. And I, and I believe that Hebrews 11 is looking at this moment of worship in Jacob's life. This moment of worship where he's able to say, God has been my shepherd. And the angel has delivered me. That word delivered is goel, which is the very word to redeem. To, to uh, redeem out of a poverty and out of a debt that is technically more than your, your entire net worth, more than the projected earnings of your entire life. It's like you're in that deep of a hole is the idea of that word. And the angel that has delivered me, even though that angel is probably a reference to his wrestling, that angel you know, kind of made him crippled for the rest of his life. But he's delivered me out of a depth of debt and despair that I was only digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And so that, those are the two views of himself. And I, and I think... That this is the eye-opening clarity that he finally has. This is the appreciation washing over him, melting his heart. And, and, and putting steel in, in his spine. At this very moment where all of this happens. Because it's, it's clear that he knows shepherding. Let me begin with that first. And, and as a shepherd, a shepherd, when he has to go after a lost sheep, does not have an easy task. And by the way, even calling himself a sheep here by saying he is my shepherd, well, he's calling himself a sheep. 
I'm sure that Jacob, more than anybody that we could uh, begin to imagine, would appreciate how ultimately frustrating and futile sheep are. How incredibly dependent they are on a shepherd. And how unbelievably stupid those sheep are. You know, I thought I, I ended up not showing it, but I ended up going onto YouTube just looking at, you know, uh, rescuing lost sheep. Oh my goodness, the number of, of videos and, and all that they go through, like time and time again, they've got the sheep is about to be rescued. And then at the last second, even though this person is on a rope and is being pulled, the, the sheep manages to kind of, you know, kind of wriggle away and off they go again. And they've got to like, you know, start the search and rescue mission all over again uh, for, for the sheep. You, you ever see in the, um, in the rodeo, like what you have to do for a sheep? Like, you know, for a horse, you know, you kind of rope them up. They're like, okay, okay, you got me, you got me. All right, I'll trot back in. But you can't do that to the sheep. The sheep, you've got to wrestle them up, take them up, pick them up on the ground, body slam them back down onto the ground, you know, kind of shock them into submission, put their, their hooves together, rope them all around, and then maybe, just maybe, the stupid, idiotic sheep will, will finally, oh, okay, I guess I can't do much now. Uh, time to go home at this point in time. But sheep have no ability to fend off either predators or parasites. That, that's why you don't see kind of like, you know, just wild flocks of sheep, th you know, thriving in the wilderness. Uh, you see horses. Sheep are not horses. Sheep are helpless idiots. <laughs> and God is the shepherd over all of us. And, and even parasites, sheep have, have not, even though they've got all that wool, you think, oh, well, maybe the wool fends it off, right? I mean, when my grass is really thick, I don't get spores, you know, creating weeds. No, parasites thrive on sheep. In order to, to kind of de-louse a sheep, if you look up those videos, oh my goodness, hear the screaming. So you, you take this sheep, right? And you, and you put it in this, some sort of a, kind of a de-lousing bath. Uh, that's weird colored and dark and opaque and you take the sheep and in order to really delouse it You've got to shove the sheep all the way under and keep it under now as this is going on Do you think that sheep is saying oh praise the Lord for the shepherd of my soul? <laughs> now probably the sheep don't have the gray matter even to conjure up this thought But but I think if they had any thought they were thinking what the heck is going on here? I was just kind of walking along and suddenly I'm picked up and I'm in this vat and I'm going to come out looking like the Joker. Like what? What in the world? And in fact, it is a brutal act that they have to do in order to keep these sheep under the, the violence of, of what goes on here, whether it's to delouse a sheep or to bring back a sheep because the predator is just, you know, licking their chops like, aha, sheep alone. I got dinner tonight. Ah, the shepherd is here. But again, when that shepherd arrives, it's not like, hey, you know, little Dolly, I'm here now. And little Dolly, you know, kind of bounds on up and jumps up into your arms and you throw it over the shoulder. It's like, oh, this is such a wonderful day, isn't it? Oh, I'm being... No, put that thought out of your mind. That sheep is like, oh, the jig is up. Where can I go like, to get away? And again, once that shepherd's there, bam. All right, so, you know, take this thing back, right? Jacob knew this better than we could ever begin. And so Jacob finally, finally, in one of the greatest declarations of worship and faith, 
says the shepherd, the shepherd, God, the shepherd has guided me all these years. Yes, even when my dad couldn't give me the time of day. That was the, as painful as that was, as psychically deep as that scar was, psychologically debilitating as I was, that was God. That was God doing something to me that needed to be done. And he allowed those events, he allowed a fallen world to affect my fallen soul so that I could this day be a man that is able to bless. And then, as I ran off, and ended up under the oppression of Laban for 20 long years of being gypped, cheated again and again. Wow. And then to be tricked into marrying the woman I didn't want to marry. That was the shepherd refining my soul, getting the parasites out, protecting me from myself, protecting me from the predation that was my own will. And then to have the love of my life, my sweet Rachel, die so early. And then to have the emblem of our love, Joseph, the strapping young boy that I took my joy in, carried away into captivity and slavery. And all I thought was he, he was dead. I had his robe, that's all I had, and I would smell it until he had no more smell of him anymore. And I despaired. And that was my life. And then as soon as that was done, famine overtook us. And I waited to die with no bread. And you know what? That was God the shepherd. Amen. Guiding me every step of the way. Because what I would have done was infinitely worse than what God had guided me through. Where I would have ended up is nowhere near where I am right now as Israel. Blessing, the future of the blessing that would affect the whole earth. Never would I have been here if not for the gracious hand of God. Even when the, the angel crippled me for life, realizing that was God. That was God bringing my deliverance greater than I could have ever imagined. And as we move on in this blessing, he then says... When Joseph saw, verse 17, when Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to him, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. All right. Joseph has a pretty good moment here. He's bowing down. He's putting the firstborn where the firstborn needs to be. He's putting the, the, the younger where the younger needs to be. He's bowing in deference. But when things don't go the way that Joseph anticipated that they should go according to his agenda, Joseph is no longer deferential to dad the patriarch. And instead, up he pops, asserting himself, asserting his own insight to say what no son should ever say. To a father and a father on his deathbed that he rebukes him and says, no, my father. Now you may be having a senile moment right now, a senior moment right now. But just so you know, I knew what I was doing. I put the older next to your right hand. 
I put the older, younger next to your left hand. It wasn't a confusing moment where you say stage right or stage left. If you want to come and meet after the church, you know, go to the left side or the right side. No, 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 no. I knew what I was doing here. With, with great insight, I did this. So now Joseph is having to find himself yet again come to a place where he submits to the will of God. When it doesn't go his way. Again, the the title of the sermon is crossed up. The only point that I have today is crossed up. And when God crosses up your life, you may think, what are you doing, God? Until you get perspective. And then you think, oh, what you did, God. What you did. How gracious. What a good and intimate and caring shepherd you are. What a deliverer you are. I was in a pit of despair and debt. I couldn't even see the top, dark as it was. And you redeemed me out of that. And I was only intent on digging deeper and deeper. And yet you redeemed me. Thank you for crossing it up. At the time, my goodness, was I ready to shake my fist at you, O Lord. But thank you for crossing me up. This is this hilltop, mountaintop moment of faith in Jacob's life that is affecting him and is about to affect Joseph as well. And what goes down at this moment is a worldview, a worldview of Joseph where he thinks, okay, the older is above the younger. That's the way that primogeniture always works. The system by which the older passes on and receives all the blessing. If it didn't happen that way, then the power of a family would be too widely dispersed in ancient culture. And, and as a result, they would be so diffused that all of the great strivings of that family would come to nothing. And so it was important to maintain primogeniture. It was important to focus the power on the firstborn. It's the way the world worked. And if we don't do this, we're going to give into folly and thinking that some sort of egalitarian equality type approach to things is going to be more kind. When in fact it won't be kind, we'll all have so little that we'll become easy prey for those that want to be able to take us out. Right? So that, that's the worldview. No, you've got to be okay with focusing the power and the wealth on the older child. And, and yet... What happens is not what Joseph's agenda looked for. Instead, there is the cross-up. And and through this cross-up, there is a kingdom view in sight now. The kingdom of God has now superimposed its agenda upon the kingdom of men. A kingdom view, rather than a world view, will help us then to be able to appreciate That it is going to be the younger who serves the older. It has happened again and again, by the way. Is that not pretty much the consistent story throughout all of Genesis? It's not the stronger who always prevails. Or it's not the stronger who typically prevails. Esau, that strapping, charismatic hunter, fisher. I don't know if he fished. But that, that man of the outdoors, that man's man. The guy you wanted to throw back a pint with. Right? right, There he was, and suddenly, upside down. As is the kingdom of God. Things are put upside down. And there, instead of Esau, it's Jacob. 
Jacob with the apron. Jacob who, who liked the kitchen and his mom. And again, in ancient culture, that's not going to fly for who you want to center all the power of the family in. Put it in the warrior's hands, not in the sous chef's hands. Because the warrior is the firstborn, and isn't it wonderful that God has arranged it in that way? And then, Rachel, the beloved one, the pretty one, the favored one, the one at the party where everybody seems to center their attention. It's not her child that ends up being the bearer of the blessing, but rather Leah. Leah with weak eyes. Leah, the one that was overlooked. Leah, the one that had to kind of have a, a trick in order for her to finally have a man. Leah, who only knew rejection and despair, through Leah is the blessing. And so it will go through generation after generation. When someone is to fight Goliath, it's not the strapping young sons of Jesse, but it's the, the runt of the litter, David, who actually steps up to the task there. And then ultimately, the one through whom the blessing flows is the one that no one gave any regard to. The one from whom men hid their faces. Nothing pleasing or attractive about him, the prophet Isaiah says about Jesus. The one who at the end of his life had nothing but a, a, a little robe of cloth that was left to him. That's all that was to his name. He had been discredited and dishonored. He had given up all of his glory. He had come to nothing. at the end of, and, and it is through him that the ultimate blessing comes to all of us. And it is through him that we appreciate and through his teaching appreciate the depth of what Jacob is teaching Joseph here and what Jacob is asserting about a kingdom view here is that everything that you think is grand and honored among men is not really the case before God. I love, I love what 1 Corinthians 1 says on, on this subject matter. There the Bible reads, Brothers and sisters, verse 26, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So that Joseph cannot stand up and say, I know better. Switch that up. This is the way it's supposed to go. And even for us right now, and you think, oh, good. Because you know what? I grew up miserable. I grew up overlooked. I grew up never picked. I grew up at the bottom of the class. I grew Well, you know what? Amen. You've got the wonderful qualifications ready to roll. But what if, what if you actually had some achievement in your life? What if you had it? going on what if you excelled in school excelled in sports you were tall you were thin you were athletic you pitched for the princeton tigers what what if all of that went, went on in your life what, what what's what's a boy to do if that's the case should you just think oh no oh man everything's gonna be flipped over and oh my what's gonna happen to me well don't despair because here's the beauty of God. He will cross up your life. He will cross up your life now and for your good. And so that you can appreciate how gracious he is 
every time that cross-up comes your way. But if you really want a God of grace, a God that will cross you up, well then, embrace the cross-ups. Embrace them every time. Embrace the idea that things that are first, as Jesus says, will be last. And the things that are last will be first. Don't resist that in your life. Look for that in your life. Because that is a kingdom view. It's literally what Jesus lays out for us. The insight that Jacob is able to affirm as Israel blessing in this scene. But for us, it's also the recognition that according to our agenda, like Joseph, I've got my plan, my ambition, my aspirations, my agenda. And I'm... Um, I, I don't mind Jesus kind of coming into my life here or there, right? And, and if you sprinkle a little more Jesus, well, maybe that'll be kind of good, right? I'll, I'll be viewed as a religious guy. And who's not going to like that? Not too much. I don't want to be weird. I don't want to be like, oh, well, keep away from him. But no, like, wow, what an honorable man. You know, here's sad. That's my testimony is that I, I when I've shared it before, before, is that I was kind of hitting on all cylinders in many different ways in life. Life was kind of cranking at a very fast pace and a wonderful pace. And there was achievement in, in many different areas of life. But I thought, hey, you know what? You know what will make all of this even cooler? If I'm seen as like a man of character and devotion. And if they think of me as a godly man on top of all this kind of ambitious ladder climbing achievement that I've got. Ho ho. Check me out. And that was my ordering of life. Me. Me, 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 me. And hey, you know, I need to get a little Jesus in there as well. And praise God that Jesus didn't put up with just that much. But that Jesus brought me to the cross up. And completely brought me to the cross up. But for many of us, and many religious folks, by the way, they're never brought fully to the cross up. It's me, 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 me. And yeah, Jesus on my own terms, but I, I, I can't be having like a complete surrender to him really shepherding me, to him throwing me down and doing all that sort of stuff that, that Jacob began to appreciate. I don't know if I want that. I, you know what? I'll take a challenge or two so that I can, you know, kind of have a, a Job 121 moment of, well, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Ha, 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 ha. I laugh off some of these little difficulties in life. And you know what? They, they actually gave me the wrong change at McDonald's today. And it was so annoying because I had to get out of my car and go back and say, you gave me the wrong change. Oh, my, my troubles that I have. And, but, but then they said to me, wow, you know, no one's ever done that in the last few days. You must be a really honorable man. Yes, yes, I am. Thank you. Thank you. Because I got a little Jesus that's kind of under me, supporting me a little bit. But it's me and me and me. Right? Again, that, that sounds like hyperbole. But in the deepest, darkest moments... Is it really? Because if you really want a God of grace, then you would understand what it is to say Jesus is Lord. And if you do not embrace and welcome a life whose banner and motto, his credo is Jesus is Lord, that's over it all, then you do not know and you do not want to be saved by grace. You want to be saved by works. You want to be able to say, ah, oh, but look at me. I'm here now. I was here on Tuesday night. 
I come on Tuesday nights to church. And it doesn't look like a church. Do I get credit for this? And I come to a church where this guy goes for like 40 minutes plus. I, I should get some, some real credit for this. And so God, come on. Look, still go. It's 10, 30 in like 30 seconds, God. I, I don't see that final slide with the charge. What's going on? Come on, come on, give me, give me the credit here, God. And you know what, God? You can put a little bit of, bit of stuff in my life, but not big stuff. Not stuff that turns my life upside down. Not a cross-up. Again, if you've been saved by grace, you know to welcome even that. But how do you get there? Because Jacob got there at the very end of his life. The very, very end of his life. And, and I want to just give us this simple challenge so that we can have an appreciation. Sometimes it's so easy to be going so fast and just looking two steps in front of ourselves as we evaluate what's got to go on in our lives. But I, I want us all to really slow down and appreciate the God of grace that has ordered your life, disrupted your agenda, turned things upside down, and will do so many times again. And here's the simple challenge and the simple meditation I want you to take. Imagine your deathbed scene. And we've had two glorious ones in our church recently. But imagine your deathbed scene. Your children are around you. You've even seen your grandchildren's faces. Or maybe you haven't. Maybe it's a sad, younger uh, intervention by God. And no matter what it is, imagine your deathbed scene and reflect how God shepherded you even through the most horrific of all recent events in your life. And if there have been none that are recently horrific, well then, rewind a couple of years. Rewind even to before your time in Christ. And, and look at even those events. And then fast forward into the ones that you hate to even imagine. What would be the worst of those? So reflect on how God has shepherded you through these events. And answer these questions. From what was he delivering you? And to where is he carrying you? Probably didn't write it that way, did I? Anyway. From what was he delivering you? And to where is he carrying you? When you can look at it in the same way that Jacob did... You'll know the intimacy of worship with God that he had. You'll know the mountaintop exhilaration of aligning your submission with the great statement, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of my life. He has saved me by grace. So bring it on, God. I get who you are. I get what you do. Thank you for ordering my life. Amen. Amen. We'll break to fellowship.